We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to an episode of the Truth Perspective on the South Radio Network. Today is Sunday, July 23rd. I'm Neil Bradley. This is Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Harrison Keeley joins us also. Hello, everyone. This week, we're delighted to be interviewing a special guest, Professor Stephen Hicks. Stephen is a Canadian-American philosopher who teaches at Rockford University in Illinois, where he also directs the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship. He is the author of two books that we know of, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, which argues that postmodernism is best understood as a rhetorical strategy of intellectuals and academics on the far left of the political spectrum developed in reaction to the failures of socialism and communism. His other book is Nietzsche and the Nazis, an examination of the ideological and philosophical roots of national socialism particularly how Nietzsche's ideas were used, and in some cases misused, by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis to justify their beliefs and practices. Stephen maintains a personal website at stephenhicks.org, well worth checking out, and where you'll find many resources, including his books, in audio form. He's on the line with us now. A very warm welcome to you, Stephen. Hey, thanks a lot. Okay. You... Well, let's say, rather than asking to explain, well, the opening question, what is postmodernism? After all, that's the purpose of your book, which everyone mm-hmm. should read, by the way. Perhaps instead you can explain why it's important for you that people should know about postmodernism. Mm. So the motivation question. Well, uh, postmodernism has been the most uh, vigorous movement in the humanities and uh, spilling over into the social sciences now for 30 uh, or 40 years, depending on how you count. Uh, so it's had an enormous impact on uh, how the uh, humanities are taught, in many cases, how the social sciences are taught at the university level. Uh, it's now also succeeded in uh, training two generations of teachers uh, who then teach millions of uh, school kids each year. So you're seeing the impact on uh, primary and high school education as well. And uh, then spill over into other cultural manifestations, movies, the uh, the art world and so on, uh, even politics. So any large scale, uh, intellectually informed, well-organized movement that affects our uh, our intellectual and cultural life needs to be uh, to be paid attention to, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, if you're disturbed by some of the uh, the manifestations of uh, postmodernism, then understanding where they came from is uh, is critical. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's that's a, that's a very good reason, I suppose. But when you say, I mean, I agree that uh, having looked into it, that um, it has spilled over into all these different areas that you say in, in society over the past number number of decades, but uh, most of the people in those various disciplines in you know in education and in politics etc um they don't know that they're for example in education they, most 
teachers or lecturers or they never declare. Well, they, well, they, they themselves, I don't, I don't think, know that they're mm. teaching uh, their their particular discipline uh, through a kind of lens of postmodernism. Would that be true to say? I mean, it's not something that is see or understood in that way or to that extent by most people, right? Yeah, no, that, that's fair to say. Uh, any movement uh, always has at least two tiers of uh, people. There are the the strategists who think about the the discipline or the movement at a, at a principled high level, and uh, uniformly right. they know what's going on. They know what the other side of the debate is. They know what the positions are that they are arguing, and they are uh, uh, you know guiding the discussion, guiding the reading lists. Uh, setting various agendas. But then it's also true that you can have uh, any l- number of people who are professionals and they are intelligent, well-meaning people, but they're not necessarily uh, 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 intellectual or philosophical. So they operate within the framework. And if that's the dominant framework that they've been exposed to, then they do learn it and internalize it. And so, yeah, if you talk to them, they wouldn't necessarily know that they're doing a Foucault thing or a, or a Derrida mm. thing. It would just be uh, part of the atmosphere they've grown up in. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the impression that I that I kind of get just kind of looking in from the outside, because um, I mean I went to to college and I, I studied music, and so there was no real like ideological focus on you know uh, any of the the subjects that I was studying at the time. But then, mm-hmm. um, like in the last few years, just watching the news and seeing um, like what what's going on at universities and particularly in what I guess you could call kind of protest movements. Um, I was really first introduced to it um, by watching the reaction to Jordan Peterson's statements in uh, in Canada and Toronto and kind of the reaction to him and other professors like him kind of all, all over the States and also in Canada. And so the impression I get from all of that is that there is a, a very – active and mobilized kind of youth movement of a, a whole bunch of, of young people who are getting active, getting on the streets, getting, you know, um, shutting down um, lectures and guest visitors at universities and other venues. And they're, they're I'd almost say like hyperactive, hyperactivists. And yet I don't get the impression that they, that they themselves really kind of know what is actually guiding them. But on the other hand, you have the professors who you'd presume, um, you know, a lot of them would actually have read all of the material and know where they're coming from, like know their history, know all, all the theoreticians and, and um, other scholars who have kind of written the, the right. texts that have right. um, guided what they are doing. So, um, well, there's one po- point in your book where you talk about, um, after having gone through many of the, the philosophical kind of developments that have led to um, the present, you talk about the emotions involved and how when when you kind of, um, when all you're left with are postmodern theories and practices, you're, only, you're left with a certain range of emotions that kind of are uh, at the root of some of those uh, philosophers. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, my memory isn't great on them, but you mentioned, I think like, like despair and guilt and nothingness. I was just wondering if maybe you could comment on the emotions of those, like that underlie some of those philosophical developments and how that might apply to the actual practice on the ground of these postmodern movements. 
Yeah, I'll start with the yeah the, what you were talking about in the first part of your uh, your uh, your comment there. Uh, obviously, when we are uh, thoughtful people, if we care a lot about politics and economics and religion and all of the things that thoughtful, uh, passionate people care about, uh, when we engage the debates and we get challenged, then our emotions are going to be provoked because we have what we think of as our high ideals that we want to see them realized. Uh, and then uh, opposition positions are, are are seen as a threat to those, to the realization of those. And we might uh, see our uh, our opposition's positions as leading to various uh, highly destructive results and so on. So it's very natural right, for thoughtful people uh, to become very passionate. Now, then the educational environment that one is raised in is uh, is decisive. Right. So if we think of uh the the modernist approach to all of these issues when we are educating young people we're going to say yes these issues are important it's important for you to think about them and uh, it's important for you to be aware that everything is controversial in uh, in religion politics economics and so forth so we're going to uh, develop in you the intellectual tools to be able to think about very difficult issues uh to be able to follow the give and take of argument right back and forth to develop in you the the psychological and the emotional resources to be uh, to be willing to take criticism uh to have the courage to be able to dish out criticism uh but the idea then is that all of this uh is in the service of our being able uh cooperatively to make progress in figuring out what the true positions are or what the, the best positions are. Now, if you think about education that way, then you're going to say you know, independence of thought is uh, is critically important. Reasoning is very important. Uh, being willing to put up with uh, and constructively engage in the process of argument is critically important. And then a whole range of social skills, you know, a certain amount of civility, uh, tolerance, um, courage to stand your own ground, right? open-mindedness and being willing to change your mind. All of these things will be part and parcel, right, of the, uh, of the education process. So what we then find, right, uh, in the, what you're calling the hyperactivists now is a generation of people for whom that whole description I just gave has not been what their education has been about, right? So if uh, two generations ago you have the deepest thinkers, the deepest intellectuals starting to be skeptical about truth, uh, starting to be uh, skeptical about the possibility of reason being efficacious uh, or the, the idea that we can productively argue right about things and be civil. If you become skeptical about all of that, then you start to think, OK, I'm a passionate person, right, who has all of these uh, strong commitments right, to various uh, uh, ideals. But I don't uh, think uh, that truth and reason and argument is the way to go anymore. So what then do I do as an educator? What do I do as a, as a person? Instead, what I'm left with right, is just my strong, passionate commitments. And uh, my goal is to to assert those. And then to the extent that I become a professor, uh, then what I'm interested in is not cultivating independence and, of judgment and argument skills in my students. Instead, I'm interested in converting them to my passionately held ideological framework and enlisting them right in the cause so that they will then go out and be fellow activists in, in achieving those goals. 
So then you end up with a, a generation of young people who really are not well informed. They don't know what the other side of the arguments are. Uh, they're not even necessarily intellectually articulate about what their own views are because they've never had to rationally examine them or contrast them to the alternatives. Instead, what you have is young people who are passionate, right, as young people are, highly energetic, and they have been uh, pointed, right, in a given direction, and they uh, they, should, they follow that direction by uh, any methods open to them. Hmm. And that's, uh, unfortunately, it's a, a dangerous situation to be in culturally. Yeah, it's um, one thing, just talking about the activists, that uh, the hyperactivism that, that Harrison mentioned. And I mean, you see this, we've seen this recently over the past year with, uh, for example, anti the anti-Trump movement <clears throat> in the US, but also in other movements in, in Western countries, like, I mean, against, um, for example, the anti-G20 or G7 protests and stuff. And a lot of these people, particularly the more militant aspects, seem to identify with the extreme left um, and and some of them maybe even describe themselves as Marxists or or communists, you know. So I mean, and that has a the that that would would tend to link them directly to a certain aspect of the of the postmodernist movement. Which I mean, if you could just describe mm-hmm. where that came from, I think I, I've read um I've, I've, actually I think it is in your book and also in some talks you've given about. Uh, yeah. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century where kind of Marxist uh, economic theory had kind of fallen flat and um, yeah, and how that led into kind of uh, postmodernism. Right. Um, There's sort of kind of two questions in there. First, I would say on the, the protest issue that I, I think uh, in an open society, uh, any sort of democratic Republican society, that a, a healthy protest culture is and should be uh, celebrated. So I'm almost always in favor of even whether I agree with the cause or not, the fact that we have a culture where lots of people are following what's going on politically, following what's going on in international events, and are finding ways to communicate their views and network with other people. And when they are upset about various things to uh, to do parades, right, and and various uh, protest methods. I think that's all uh, part and parcel of having a healthy, open democratic Republican society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the fact that we have, uh, you know, uh, I'm in Canada right now, but in the United States, you know, a, a constitutional right to freedom of association and freedom of, of, uh, of, uh, of protest. Uh, and that's a, a kind of a jealously guarded constitutional right. I think that's, uh, that's an awesome thing. I also would say, uh, you know, when you have obviously polarizing uh, presidents like, uh, like President Trump is, and uh, you have any number of uh, international leaders who are, uh, you know, in various degrees, anti-liberal or illiberal, uh, mm-hmm. that it's a, a natural and positive response for for uh, people to uh, to rise up and, and protest. So if you take something like the G7, right, or the G20, uh, you know, here, my, my particular view is coming out, but here you've got you know, a small number of uh, kind of international elitists who have the pretense that they are running the world's economies and we seven or we 20 world mm-hmm. leaders are going to make all of the decisions about how the political and economic environment, right, is going to go. Well, that's, uh, that's, uh, uh something that should be, uh, should be challenged on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. Now, the tricky thing then is how you do that, right, without undercutting uh, uh, the core of, of liberalism. And that is to say, we're going to protest, but we are going to do it 
peacefully and constructively. Uh, and when you find that the protesters uh, are either a majority of them or an active ma minority of them are in fact not uh, liberal, right? That they are using the protest venue as a vehicle for them to engage in violence. Uh, that's when you start to have a, a, a sickness. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a dangerous precedent because then we know, of course, that the response is just going to be in the name of security and order, mm -hmm. uh, that we have a, have a, a higher police protest, a more militarized pro, uh, response to the protesters. We're going to limit the rights and ability of protesters. Uh, and then you are taking further steps away from, from the, having an open society. Now, uh, the second part of, uh, of your question, Rin, was about uh, the capture by uh, the left and the far left. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's a long story, right, that needs to be told there. Because one of the very interesting things about the first generation of postmodernists is that they, uh, all of them, 99.9% you know, .9 of them, the top uh, several hundred right, intellectuals and strategists, were coming out of the, uh, the far left. Uh, and they were, uh, you know, disillusioned by the failures of, uh, of various kinds of left-wing projects. And so uh, postmodernism is in large part a uh, political response strategy. So certainly we can and should mm -hmm. talk about that more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the people, uh, I mean, the postmodern philosophers, the first ones, um, they, they were, they were, um, to, to a large extent, kind of Marxist or uh, affiliated with Mar Marxist ideology of a, uh, and it's it's positing of a, a kind of a, I suppose it's a, a utopia, a kind of a, a utopian society, a workers' utopia. Uh, and when that didn't happen, I mean, um, the, the predictions of, of Marxist economic economic theory uh, didn't really pan out. In fact, right, they, right. the the, the opposite right. happened, right? I mean, or almost the opposite happened. The right. poor didn't get poorer, and the rich didn't get richer, uh, and it di didn't work out. So surely that kind of economic theory, Marxism and, and everything to do with it should have gone the way of the, of the dodo kind of thing. People should have accepted that. Okay, right. it's not working, so let's leave it alone. But they seem to have transformed it right. or, or, or reformed it into, you know, take it to the next stage. Well, let's just take it down then. If it didn't fall all by itself, capitalist, uh, uh, the capitalist economic theory it didn't fall by itself, well, then let's, let's, let's deconstruct it ourselves. Is, is that fair? Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. This takes us to one of the core uh, arguments, right, of my book. Uh, I think there are uh, four or five main variants on postmodernism, but two of them are highly politicized, and the politicization does come out of far left politics. So, here, yeah, a little bit of the the history is important, and the the biography mm -hmm. of the leading postmodern intellectuals. So, if you think of uh, someone like uh, Michel Foucault, uh, who, you know, he changed his mind, uh, evolves in various directions over the course of his career. But in the early 1950s, he, uh, he was a member of the French Communist Party and was uh, by and large a, a true believer. You know, he did break with the French communists uh, in the, in the 50s because they were following uh, blindly marching orders from Moscow and he found that too, uh, stultifying. But, uh, you know, in the 1960s, he did not go too far. He became a, a Maoist and was enamored with the, the, the cultural revolution in, uh, in, in China. Um, so here you have someone who is, you know, working heavily in uh, a Marxist framework, at least in terms of his politics. You know, Jacques Derrida, uh, you know, explicitly says that his entire 
postmodern deconstructive uh, literary project is motivated by a certain kind of Marxism mm. uh, in the spirit of Marxism, as, as he puts it. Uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, you know, from whom we get the, uh, the, the, the no meta narratives phrase and the, the, the label, the postmodern condition, uh, you know, edited and published widely in uh, Marxist and communist journals, right? And so on. So it's useful then to think that all of these guys, uh, they also actually got their PhDs in philosophy. Uh, so there's a mm-hmm. philosophical side, uh, about language and epistemology that's important here. But uh, in the 1950s, you know, all of them are young men in their 20s, very intelligent, very politically engaged, and all of them are committed to far left politics. So it's worth realizing that in the 1950s, there was a crisis that was going on in far left thought, particularly in classical Marxist right thinking. Uh, Partly it was uh, a matter of Marx and Engels one century before had predicted that the uh, the communist revolution would come of its own accord, that capitalist society had to evolve in, in certain directions. And it did seem by the 1950s that all of those social science predictions were false. And as you mentioned, uh, things were going in the opposite direction. Right? Instead of the number of poor people increasing, the number of poor people in capitalism had gone down dramatically. Instead of the uh, the middle class being squeezed out by the ruthless capitalist contradiction uh, competition, rather the uh, the middle class had expanded rapidly. Instead of the number of uh, rich people, uh, millionaires and billionaires, uh, becoming smaller and smaller as a a tinier group of people assumed control over the world's wealth, the number of millionaires was increasing. The number of billionaires was increasing. So all of these, uh, you know, allegedly social scientific predictions, right, about how capitalism was going to develop. You know, there was a century now of data showing that the opposite, right, was uh, was happening. The workers were not uh, oppressed and uh, revolutionary. Instead, the workers, you know, they all were buying cars and uh, putting air conditioners in their homes and watching television and mm-hmm. and so forth. You know, the, the 50s were a pretty good, uh, pretty good decade uh, that way. At the same time, when you uh, started to look more objectively at what was going on in the flagship socialist nations, the Marxist nations, of course, in the 1920s and 30s, everybody on the far left was just in love with the Soviet Union. All the fellow travelers went there and came back and wrote glowing accounts of how awesome everything was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the 1950s, uh, that was really hard to uh, to maintain because, uh, right. uh, you know, data was coming out about uh, the difficult economic circumstances there. Uh, data was coming out and lots of uh, anecdotal stories about the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the persecution and the torture of uh, dissidents. Uh, the gulag information was starting to trickle out. Of course, this is before Solzhenitsyn's uh, uh, Gulag Archipelago was published a little bit later. But still, there was enough awareness that uh, what was going on in the Soviet Union, which was supposed to be this ideal, humane uh, uh, indication of where Marxism was going to take the world, uh, things were uh, were pretty ugly right coming out of that. In mm-hmm. 1956, uh, I think it was probably the most important year uh, Khrushchev, in his uh, semi-secret speech, it revealed that all of the, the genocide under Stalin was true. You know, tens of millions of people, horrible things happened to them. Uh, uh, and it was just nasty. Also in 1956, Hungary, which was a satellite Soviet state, 
there you had students who were uh, chafing under the, the, the very narrow ideological education that they were getting. Workers, uh, uh, you know, finding it hard to uh, to put food on the table and look after their families. You know, and as a socialist uh, satellite state of the Soviet Union, it's supposed to be that the government there cares about the students, it cares about the workers. But uh, what they did, and then for the first time on international television, was they they sent in the troops and shot people, they sent in the tanks and uh, killed people. They rounded up the uh, the leaders of the protests, uh, most of whom were initially peaceful, and uh, tortured them and excommunicated or executed them rather. And uh, you know all of this uh, was a major blow to Western Marxist intellectuals. Uh, it was a real eye opener because when they were looking mm. at the capitalist West, you know, you can make your complaints about lots of things going on in the capitalist West, but it's not that bad. At the same time, when you look at what's going on in the Soviet uh, states, uh, it really is awful. So what starts to happen in the 1950s is uh, uh, a realization by fellow travelers on the far left that that left strategy needs to be dramatically rethought. Uh, and that's why the old left dies. And then by the 1960s, we have a new left uh, in, in its, uh, its principles and its movements strategy has uh, has evolved significantly and uh, the important point then for postmodernism is that it's thinkers like uh, uh, Foucault and Derrida and Lyotard and others who are the uh, the ones who become the strategists and point the new direction out mm. and and <clears throat> what was the I mean what was their new direction or, or how do they go about pointing out that new direction because Derrida is yeah. is known as a deconstructionist in terms of language etc but that to me it seems people can say well that's not so you know so terrible he's just right. he's just dealing with uh, you know kind of epistemology and stuff like that so um but for me it seems that that opens the doorway to a kind of uh kind of things that we're seeing today uh in in um right. with the kind of social justice warriors and that kind of thing where they're uh, all, all the right. stuff around that, it seems to have opened the door to that. So, I mean, I don't think we can kind of like absolve, absolve Derrida and people like that of, of all blame in that right. sense. You know? Right. So your, your question, if I can uh, reformulate, I think this is true to the spirit of what you're saying is, you know, Derrida is working in linguistic theory and uh, mm -hmm. deploying some heavy duty epistemology. How can something so uh, abstract and abstruse have political implications Right. Uh, well, one answer to that is, uh, is is to think negatively. You know, if you take classical Marxist socialism, right, it uh, it says that it's scientific socialism. Uh, that is to say that it is true, and that there is a, a methodology that's a rational scientific methodology that's being deployed, and that we are making predictions about uh, how the world is going to go based on the social scientific principles. Uh, and that means that uh, we should be able to put the scientific theory to the test of empirical data. So we'll gather the data as uh, social scientists do, and we will use logic and reason and mathematics and all of those tools and statistics to test the, uh, the scientific theory. So the problem then is going to be if you are a socialist in the 1950s and you are looking at the actual data and you're looking at the uh, the, the empirical results uh, from uh, the previous century's history, then you've got a very big problem, right? Because all of the empirical data shows that the capitalist nations are doing a lot better by economic indicators than the socialist nations are doing. 
at the theoretical level, the uh, the arguments uh, against socialist calculation and planning is being developed by uh, people like uh, Ludwig von Mises and uh, Friedrich von Hayek, who got the Nobel Prize eventually, you know, Milton Friedman, right, and others. Uh, all of those arguments, uh, logically and rationally, are very powerful. So if you are then on the losing end, right, of a scientific debate, then you've got uh, an intellectual challenge. Because to the extent that you're a scientist, right, in your epistemology, then you're going to say, well, look, the data matter. The uh, the empirical commitment matters. I'm going to go with what the data shows. The, the willingness to uh, enter into the give and take of argument and let the better argument prevail, that's going to be the dominant principle in your in your thinking. But if you strongly believe and are committed to a theory and the data are going against it, the empirical uh, results are going against it, the logic and the reason is going against it, then to the extent that you actually are a social scientist, you will change your mind. You will say, all right, I believe this theory, but it doesn't fit the data. I have to reject the theory and find some other theory. Now, it's true that what you find in the 1950s and 60s is lots of people who, when they were young, they were socialists and they were rational uh, about their socialism and they thought that it was rational. And when the data started to come in, they said, well, OK, I guess socialism just can't be true. I need to uh, change my mind. And so they would drift to the middle uh, politically or they would uh, drift toward uh, some sort of free market capitalism. But we also know that it's, uh, it's psychologically hard for people to change their minds on on, uh, on on important normative commitments right, that they've made. And lots of people then want to say, well, if the data conflicts with my uh, my theory, then the hell with data. Right? If uh, if my my position is rational, uh, sorry, if rationality right seems to be committing with my normative ideals, then I'm going to find a way to uh, to uh, to deny rationality. So all of the deconstructive methods, those uh, skeptical, relativized uh, uh, notions that language is uh, is indeterminate and can be kind of subjectively manipulated into whatever, or uh, that any you know official language meaning is always a cover for a deeper, darker underlying meaning. All mm. of those then uh, allow you to say, well, you know, if there's data or arguments or narratives that are are conflicting with my normative commitments, well, those are just narratives, right? That's just semantics. That doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean uh, mean anything that I need to pay attention to deeply, and I can maintain then my uh, my normative commitment by some other means. So that's one route, right? Um, and do you see a danger in that kind of uh, uh, what you just described? Uh, do you see a danger in, in it in it spreading throughout society? Do you see, do you see a direct effect uh, on on society for? A, a bad effect that's or a negative effect on society oh absolutely uh look uh, all of these issues are hard you know philosophy is hard politics is hard mm. understanding how economies work and what kind of principles uh, should be in place to uh, to have a flourishing economy uh you know well-meaning highly intelligent people using the best social science methods and a commitment to reason can have lots and lots of arguments about that but what we we do know is that the only way we can make progress on those issues is by having lots and lots of smart people doing lots and lots of research and lots of argument to winnow out the weaker theories and focus on the stronger theories and put those to the test. 
Mm -hmm. uh, if you then have a philosophical principle commitment that says we're not going to do that, we don't believe in empirical data anymore. We don't believe in rationality. We don't believe that uh, the pursuit of truth is possible. Then you're not going to try. And if you're not going to try, then we're not going to make progress on those uh, issues. And instead, what you are left with then is uh, the idea, well, you just uh, believe whatever you want to believe because it uh, pushes your normative value buttons. And uh, uh, then we're, we're going to have uh, very ugly uh, social manifestations when everybody is just out activistically pushing their own uh, value agendas on each other. Hmm. In, in universities today, Stephen, are are the the big names in postmodernism: Derrida, Foucault, Lyotard. Are, are they still widely taught? I mean, is it considered? Is it a branch of philosophy, or or is it has it been discarded by the wayside, <clears throat> at least theoretically? Uh, yeah, kind of a split decision here. Uh, <laughs> the big names you just mentioned, uh, two generations ago, maybe three generations ago now, uh, all of them were using the state-of-the-art arguments that had been developed in philosophy, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of language, the epistemological theories, right, and so on, um, uh, that have been developed in the 30s, 40s, and so on. Uh, so what I would say is in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, everybody who was well-educated in the humanities and the social sciences was uh, reading Foucault, Derrida, right, and so on. But then, of course, what happens is in the next generation, uh, uh, the next generation of professors and intellectuals, they write their own books, extending those theories and modifying them right in various ways. And so uh, Foucault, Derrida, and, histor and the others start to become slightly historical figures. And so instead of necessarily being read, say, at the undergraduate level, they will only be read at, at the graduate student level. Um, and then by the time we get into the third generation, um, <clears throat> like by the time we get to the third generation postmodernism, uh, people are even at the graduate school level typically less well educated. They're less interested in the history of their disciplines. They're less interested in engaging in the arguments on the other side. So uh, why do I need to read uh, Foucault or Derrida or Rorty when they spend so much of their time arguing against what we now know to be these failed and discredited theories? I can just uh, take the, uh, the, the postmodern principles and apply them in a more contemporary fashion. Mm. So what I've noticed uh, among the uh, among the younger PhDs that I uh, interact with who are postmodernists is that they are less well educated in the uh, the big names, right, so to speak. They just uh, kind of internalize those principles and to, to some extent they just function as axioms in their thinking and they're more interested in uh, applying wow. them. And Why so then that... is it so prevalent? I, this is what I don't understand. Why is it so prevalent in their assumptions if they're not even being directly indoctrinated with it? Because they have been already, I suppose, as part of the cultural fabric or is that, I don't know. Yeah, let's try, maybe draw draw an, a religious analogy. You know, you would say, you know, if you take, say, a, a denomination, Lutherans, um, you know, in the upper Midwestern part of the United States, there are millions of Lutherans. But how many of them have read Martin Luther, right, in the in the original? Right. Right. Or uh, or Methodists, how many of them have read uh, Wesley or Presbyterians, right, and so forth. Mm -hmm. right, at a certain mm -hmm. point, uh, those doctrines become internalized and popularized. 
and uh, the large number of peoples, even if they are you know, serious in their religious commitments, um, they, uh, they don't feel the need to go and read about the, the historical sources. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, I think, with the you can kind of get a, a really vivid impression of the result of that by <clears throat> just going on Twitter. There's this uh, Twitter user, I, I think they're called um, New Peer Review or something like that, but they every day they, they post abstracts and um, <clears throat> quotes from uh, papers published in, you know, all the, the kind of social sciences and humanities like journals and all mm-hmm. from this postmodernist um, kind of style. And the, you can, I, I think that's all, that's all you really need to see where, where this all leads, uh, what you need to see right, where this all leads, right. because um, this guy, well, before the show, we were mentioning um, uh, Ernest Gellner, who is a, an anthropologist who wrote a book, Postmodernism, Reason and Religion. And several times in that little book, he, he just points out that, kind of the the result of postmodernism is speaking in it's almost like speaking in tongues the the language is so obtuse and undecipher indecipherable sure. that it becomes almost a caricature of itself and you, and you, and this book he wrote that book like 20 something years ago and you look at it now and it's even worse where you you read these papers mm-hmm. and they're just total nonsense and Right. That I think the way I see it is that the, these authors, like the so-called scholars, have totally internalized um, the ideas, um, the kind of root premises and, and assumptions that then just get um, just inform everything that they write. And and you don't see any reference to any of the, you know, the people that you've been talking about, like Foucault or Derrida or any mm. philosophers right. like Sure. At any time, it's just it's all about the the ideology and the um, just their jargon, like the the language they use. So it's all about intersectionality and um, you know gender and trans issues and and feminism and patriarchy. And they're all these kind of big, abstract, vague ideas that then translate down into these very like um, you know written sentences that don't really say much at all because it's it's all just strange indecipherable language and i you know it it's just very strange for me to see that well there's a yeah a few uh, things that are going on there i mean one is uh any uh, any writing or any mode of communication there are always two interrelated things there's the content and there's the form right or there's the, Mm -hmm. the subject and there's the method and uh, of course, if you think that truth matters uh, and that one needs to be rational and logical, then uh, what that means on the method side and the con- uh, uh, sorry, the style side is that you're going to strive for clarity and uh, uh, kind of a ruthless uh, consistency in in your expression because you want to mm-hmm. communicate the truth and give people uh, the ability to find weaknesses in your position so uh, you can change your your, your formulation and, and make some progress that way mm. but what that then means is uh, if you abandon right truth as your goal then it's going to have methodological implications right because then clarity and logicality in your mode of expression is no longer right very very important if instead uh, you substitute for any sort of uh, objectivity uh, the idea of a, of a radical subjectivity, that uh, that what we call uh, language is not reflective in any way 
of anything going on outside, but is merely an expressive tool that we use, then uh, uh, what you do in your writing, if you take that medium, is uh, you, you, you sit down and you just let the words pour out of you. Uh, and whether they make sense, uh, whether they communicate anything to some other subject, uh, really is of, of secondary importance. Hmm. Uh, now another uh, element here is, you know, part of it's uh, an occupational hazard of academics. You know, every academic discipline develops its, its, develops rather its own jargon. Hmm. Uh, and so there's a, there's a technical language that people who are outside the discipline have a hard time following. But what happens uh, in the second generation is that it does become formulaic. And especially when you've got the second and third tier level intellectuals, you know, the people who are pretty smart, but not really that smart. Uh, they learn to mimic the style and, and, uh, and to drop the names that are necessary without necessarily having read them deeply. They know the catchphrases and the formulations that are that are in the approved lexicon and they, they will uh, string them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hope that something, so to speak, uh, catches the eye of an editor will stand out and, and go ahead. Mm-hmm. Another part, element of it is uh, that uh, on the subjectivity, you know, if part of your formal content of your view is that, uh, and this now brings in another element of postmodernism, uh, if you stop thinking of people as individuals uh, with their own minds and their own autonomy, right, as, as people who have a rational capacity, but it's up to them to exercise it right or not with that uh, that individual responsibility uh, and uh, that your identity is the result of the decisions and choices that you make as an individual. If instead you uh, substitute for that the view that people are born uh, into various environmental uh, circumstances, social environmental circumstances, and that they are uh, kind of more passively constructed by their social circumstances. And so mm. here all of the, the idea of social construction, that your gender is constructed, that your ethnicity is constructed, uh, that your class identity is constructed and so forth, and that a lot of the construction uh, occurs through the medium of language. So there are different languages out there, uh, each of which uh, carves up the territory differently. And you come to think in terms of the language that you are uh, you are taught as a youth. But then uh, you stop thinking of people as individuals with their own autonomy. But then you do see them as just these uh, intersection points right, where all of these different social forces happen to have converged. And so you start to see yourself as a vehicle right through which other social forces are working right, and not right as an individual with your own ability to form your own identity in any significant mm. way. Mm. So at that point, then uh, uh, you see yourself as a, as a vehicle, right? Or as a conduit, right? Through which other social forces are, are flowing. And uh, the way much of society works is through language. And so you are a, a vehicle through which various linguistic units just flow. And your job mm. just is to kind of slightly manage the flow and express the flow uh, and that's what your your authentic identity amounts to. Hmm. Well, and, and I think one of the other, uh, another aspect that goes along with that is that if you see yourself as socially constructed, then you see others as socially constructed as well. And I think that um, that might yes. have something to do with, with 
um, well, there's there's a consequence to that because if you see other people just as uh, this kind of malleable group of well <laughs> of others essentially to kind of you know borrow a phrase from the the, the postmodern postmodernists maybe you, then and you see seeing them as individuals that leads to um, some uh, some consequences I think and I think sure tell me if I'm wrong or not but um, in your book you quote several of the more like the older philosophers that the, the kind of precursors to postmodernism like Rousseau and uh, and how in their politics in in what they thought about how to bring about socialism or you know just any kind of what they their kind of utopia of what society should be like it's 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 almost well it's, it was disturbing for me to to listen i li- i listened to the to the audiobook to listen to some of their statements about just how little value they had for individuals or humans that it was just well if a whole bunch of people need to die then there there needs to be a reign of terror essentially to clean out the the old and bring in the new which is essentially what happened Absolutely. in uh, yeah. with the soviets maybe you could just comment on uh, on that a bit about how maybe the, the kind of de depersonalizing and and basically not seeing others as humans. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, it, it affects how you see yourself and how you see other people. Yes, if you think of people as uh, constructed by their uh, social environments, uh, so you know, Marxism comes out of a strong environmental determinist tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can also add that behaviorism in the middle part of the 20th century was one of the two leading uh, psychological theories, and uh, that was uh, you know, uh, Skinner's phrase, beyond freedom and dignity. Well, there is no individual freedom. There is no individual dignity. And the, the, what we call the human being is totally a product of uh, environmental uh, determining uh, conditioning forces. So if you put that together, then, uh, with, with the idea that the, the conditioning forces are social groups, then what that means is that when you see right, another person, you see them only as a representative of that other group. You don't see that person as an individual. Uh, and so you don't treat that person as an individual. Instead, you see that person just as an instantiation of a certain political ideology. And if that political ideology is different from your political ideology, then that's just a hated other group that's uh, in conflict with my group. And I just want to see it uh, damaged or, or, or destroyed. Mm-hmm. So you're then willing uh, to do things to other individuals that you would never do uh, if you saw other people as individuals right, with their own dignity, with their own autonomy that, uh, that needs to be tolerated. Uh, 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 and that uh, you need to deal with that person as a as a, as a unique individual. So it's always a um, a first step in in social conflict that that dehumanizing, where you start to see the other as an abstracted, uh, mm. uh, less than fully human right entity, and that uh, allows you to do more things. The other side of that is then, of course, if you see yourself right as, uh, as as just a vehicle through which your group asserts its interests, then that diminishes your responsibility, right? So it's like I didn't uh, make myself, and it's not, so to speak, me that is doing these things and is responsible, right, for these. I'm a vehicle through which my group is asserting its interests. You know, uh, you know, we, we uh, in, in cliche fashion say it's you know it's for the good of the cause, and I'm willing to. Uh, 
to set aside my individuality in order to to achieve the cause. But uh, there really is no individual responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm not an autonomous individual, right, anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I can just do anything, and I have a a get out of jail free card, morally speaking, uh, so to speak, to uh, for anything that I do. Uh, hmm. It's for the good of my group, and it's against a, it's against a hated group. So, yeah, tolerance goes out the window. Uh, civility goes out the window. The willingness to uh, to damage right other people, and the willingness uh, easily to absolve oneself right of, uh, of, of 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 things that you are doing uh, is going to uh, increase dramatically. Hmm. Reminded of there's one uh, yeah, very striking phrase in in Rorty. It wasn't exactly in this context, but uh, but he was you know saying that uh, one of the things that does come out of of, of postmodernism is what he called the ethnocentric predicament that we're all born in a certain ethnic framework and to a large extent conditioned by it, and really it's impossible for us to think outside of our our uh, our group our, our orientation. So that we really can't understand and take seriously people who are that different from us. And uh, conjoining that with another point at which he says, look, yeah, we do all sorts of horrible things. Yes, maybe socialism has this terrible history of uh, brutality and and repression. But, you know, uh, we just kind of have to forget all of that and focus on on the future. So that very casual attitude toward uh, moral responsibility, uh, even in someone who's as moderate, I would say, in his postmodernism as, as mm-hmm. Richard Rorty. Uh, it's uh, it's very close to the surface. Hmm. Yeah, and I suppose the flip side of that idea that um, that everyone is uh, just a, a construction of, of the environmental or cultural forces is that if you don't like, uh, you know, your life, for example, or your so your, your your conditions, then uh, you can very easily claim that as oppression that I was created in this way. And if it's in the context of being oppressed, if I don't like my position in society, then I can turn that into uh, blaming the culture and blaming society and wanting to 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 pull it down sure. because I'm oppressed. Sure, yes, it. that makes right. And uh, yeah, if you are raised in a culture where you are taught that who you are and what happens to you in your life is not a matter of your choice, mm. that you don't have the power and the agency to uh, make yourself into what you want, then, of course, those who end up in uh, poor life circumstances are going to feel that we're going to get more people ending up in that circumstance because they're not going to exert themselves as often. But, mm. yes, part and parcel of that will be that it's not your fault that you are the way you are, that it's uh, a result of social forces beyond your control. And it's the natural for people who are very frustrated to uh, to want to lash out in various ways and to uh, to latch on to uh, ideologies that uh, uh, justify them lashing out in various ways and blaming other people for, for their circumstances. So, yeah, it is a, a downward spiral. And it's got to the ridiculous situation where, um, where even people, uh, you know, white white uh, university students um, in the U.S., for example, uh, who kind of, from a cultural creation uh, point of view, uh, had a kind of lucky roll of the dice, who are quite well off, come from upper middle class families and stuff. Those those people are also uh, complaining that they're effectively being oppressed because 
they were born into a fairly affluent uh, uh, um, family or section of society. And that's oppression. That's also oppression. Right. So any, yeah, yeah, any uh, circumstance that you're born into has its uh, strengths and weaknesses, pluses and minuses. But what we do get coming out of postmodernism is always an emphasis on the negative, right, on the on mm-hmm. the critical. Right. Uh, it also then becomes, to the extent that oppression and alienation and victimhood come to be the the dominant elements in the discourse, then people learn that that's the that's the card that you have to play, right, so to speak, or that's the uh, that's the rhetorical strategy that you use to get noticed, and so everybody jumps in on that finding the problems in their life and putting those forth. Yes, I'm a victim in this way and who can out victim whom uh, is going to be the one that gets the most advantages. Go ahead, Harrison. Okay. Well, I, I, I want to change, change direction for just a minute here. Um, kind of going off on uh, some of the ideas that you've been saying, maybe kind of widen the scope. Um, like growing up, um, it's almost a, a trope that you hear in education. Oh, what am I going to use math for? You know, what am I going to use calculus for? So what's the point in learning it? Well, I think there's often a, the same kind of um, attitude towards philosophy where, um, you know, the, the vast majority, I think, of the population would have no real idea of any of the major philosophers or their ideas and would just kind of write it off as, um, you know, maybe a bunch of eggheads and, you know, with big glasses theorizing, but with no real connection with the uh, real uh, world. Uh, <laughs> and I don't necessarily think that's true, yeah. but, I, but, I, but I think that that's kind of maybe a common <laughs> conception. I don't know for sure. But I'm wondering if you can maybe tell sure. us um, why you think philosophy is important and how philosophy actually impacts the world, like imp- comes down to the, the, you know, the lowest level of just basic human life and affects right, the way humans right. interact with each other. Right. Now, there's a real issue here. Uh, philosophy, by the nature of the discipline, is very abstract. Uh, and it's often a multi-step uh, series of connections that one needs to make to see the, the practical uh, implications of them. So an analogy I think one could make is if you think about theoretical physics, uh, the connection between theoretical physics and then applied physics and then theoretical engineering and applied engineering all the way down to the uh, the particular uh, technological products that we all use to enhance our lives. We can all be u- uh, end users of various um, um, uh, technological projects without understanding the engineering behind them, uh, let alone the, uh, the, uh, the two or three generations ago of highly abstract mathematics and and physics that made them possible. Mm -hmm. So the same thing I think is true of a lot of the very abstract debates in in metaphysics and epistemology. Uh, uh, Those debates were decided, uh, say, two generations ago, and it takes uh, a couple of generations for their manifestation, generations rather for their manifestation to, uh, to come out. But there's a few ways of, of looking at this. I mean, one is, uh, of course, uh, to take big picture historical um, uh, datum. I mean, there's obviously a difference between living in the United States in the 1950s and living in the Soviet Union right, in the 1950s. Uh, the United States is a product of a certain political culture. The, uh, the formulation then of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution uh, had been almost two centuries earlier, 
But behind the formulation of the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution then was a widely shared set of philosophical views, uh, most prominently those of John Locke, uh, Algernon Sidney, right, and others. So the connections to from rather the abstract theory, say, of John Locke to two generations later, young, uh, well-educated political revolutionaries, say, of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's generation, who internalized those views and then mount a successful political revolution, who then set a very broad set of political principles in place in the Declaration and the Constitution, right? And then out of that, you get a certain cultural manifestation. Um, the same thing uh, you can trace then in the case of the Soviet Union. You have a particular political and economic culture that had developed, say, by the 1950s and the 1960s. But that's very explicitly right coming out of a generation earlier, young intellectual revolutionaries, uh, Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky and the others, uh, all of whom were very well read and they had read classical Marxism. So they're reading Marx, they're reading Engels. They become true believers. They uh, then mount a successful revolution and then put in place certain institutional practices that that uh, put the, mean that you live in a certain kind of uh, political environment. So mm -hmm. from Marx to Lenin to the concrete results, from uh, John Locke to, say, Thomas Jefferson to the concrete results. You can say the same thing about the French Revolution, uh, the leading... Uh, uh, Jacobins, uh, Robespierre, Saint-Just, Danton, so forth, all of them were explicitly disciples of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, not so much Voltaire, not so much uh, the, the other uh, Diderot and the other uh, uh, French Enlightenment thinkers, but explicitly the counter-Enlightenment, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Robespierre carried uh, Rousseau's social contract around with him all the time, the way other people carry the Bible around with them all the time. And so from Rousseau to Robespierre to the political results, that's a, an obvious route. Uh, another example I would show this is the subject of one of my other books, though. But if you think about National Socialism right, and Nazism, uh, why did that uh, have so much impact in Central Europe uh, in the, in the, uh, the early and middle decades of the 20th century, and then you start to read the intellectuals uh, who were supporters of and uh, the architects of National Socialist philosophy, uh, people like Moeller, Vandenbroek, uh, Joseph Goebbels, we forget sometimes that Goebbels had a PhD and was a very widely read humanist scholar, uh, uh, Oswald Spengler, right, and so forth. Uh, all of them were uh, reading uh, Nietzsche, Hegel, and again, Marx, and saw themselves to a large extent as uh, disciples, right, of those philosophers mm -hmm. as developing a political philosophy that then the political activists, Hitler and others among them are putting into, into practice. So that's mm -hmm. one way, uh, one way of doing it if you're interested in the connections in between philosophy and political history. Uh, but let me, let me pause right there, brethren. Talking a lot, and it's a very rich question, Harrison, that you're putting out. There's other things I could say as well. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll I'll just kind of try to summarize a bit, and then go in a diff another different direction. So when you have uh, when you start with philosophers, um, you know, thinking about and formulating ideas about epistemology and metaphysics, and um, 
you know, the nature of being and the nature of knowledge. Um, oftentimes, when you go to the root of it, you find some some base um, like um, principles or axioms that, that then inform the the arguments and and uh, and the conclusions. And so then you get a, a group of people surrounding these philosophers who who adopt these ideas, and then um, th- those ideas get manifested in a certain form. Usually, we well, the examples that you've given have been in kind of mass political movements or political developments in certain nations and regions. And then uh, tying this back to something you said earlier about the kind of different tiers, then you have the like the the masses of people that will get behind a political movement that is informed by these premises and axioms that then kind of just internalize them without necessarily being aware of who came up with the idea or even what the idea is and it just becomes uh like a movement that that isn't necessarily um it's more action or emotionally based as opposed to like intellectually informed and absolutely yeah so so there are consequences to ideas basically and to those basic uh beliefs and convictions about reality and and humanity like w- who we are what reality is and how that all works so absolutely. the way i want to to lead this is um in your book you 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 by tracing well the book is is focused on postmodernism so we can just kind of uh narrow down the lens to this one issue and you you kind of trace it but you trace it over what something like 200 years going back well f- further than that going back all the way to to kant for example and and uh marx and hegel and all these yes. um kind of old old philosophers that uh, a lot of people haven't even heard about um, nowadays if you just talk to kids on the street and um correct me if i'm wrong on this but my impression is that um so these philosophers and even a lot of what we'd considered modernism um when you when they've been an, analyzed and really taken apart, um, um, it seems to be that the consensus has been that. Um, well, I'll, I'll I'll go in a different direction. It seems to be that the postmodernist um, conclusions about epistemology and metaphysics are um, more widely believed even among non-postmodernists. That is that. Um, we can't prove the objectivity of values or mathematics or um, or the objectivity of the world. It's like we just we don't know how to do that. And so it seems to me that postmodernism almost seems like the the logical result of the past several hundred years of philosophy. Because um, um, as far as I'm aware, well, can you correct me if I'm wrong? Like, is, is that the kind of um, let's say philosophical consensus that these are that truth and reality are things that that haven't been um, adequately or kind of consistently defended yeah yeah that's a that's a good question uh a very deep one uh, i would say that uh, philosophy uh was in a very skeptical position in the middle part of the 20th century and not coincidentally that's when postmodernism with its deep skepticism uh, was being developed the philosophy profession has i think moved on and uh, while there's still obviously widespread debate about all of these fundamental principles, uh, there is a lot more of the profession that is now uh, much more optimistic about the possibility of uh, objectivity and realism. And much of philosophy is done on a, a realistic and rational basis right? where uh, we're, we're trying to figure out how the human mind works. And so philosophers are working with cognitive scientists right? or mm-hmm. We do think on normative issues that there is, uh, you know, 
it makes a, an objective difference to the life of the individual and the life of society if we uh, have these normative principles as opposed to those normative principles and that we can find a, a grounding. So there are uh, a lot of philosophers uh, who are, uh, I, would say, I would say, kind of modernist philosophers or going back further, Aristotelian philosophers who think hmm. that uh, we, we, even if we don't necessarily have it all worked out, that we're on the right track and making progress in, uh, in figuring out some important philosophical truths about the world. Um, but at the same time, uh, within philosophy, there are, of course, the, the traditional skeptical schools and subjectivist schools and so on. And so the, the debate is engaged. So most of the, uh, the postmodernism, I think you find outside of philosophy departments. So some departments like sociology, some anthropology departments, uh, in many cases, uh, literature departments, uh, some schools of legal philosophy. Uh, some elements of, uh, of history and historiography have been taken over by postmodernism. And of course, uh, the various uh, uh, special studies areas like women's studies and, and the various ethnic and race studies groups, many of those are captured by, by postmodernism. So uh, I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush uh, and say that all of the humanities is, uh, is postmodern. Uh, you need to drill down and, and look at different subsectors. Hmm. But uh, you're also then making a historical point that, yes, this is all stuff that moves very slowly. Uh, and because the issues are so abstract and so difficult uh, in philosophy, in many cases, it's a matter of a certain philosophical theory will be promulgated and it will take a matter of two or three or four generations of argument before philosophers say, OK, I guess that one didn't work out. They uh, trace it to, to its dead end, so to speak, and then they cast around for a generation or so waiting for a new uh, overarching theory to be developed by some genius or other. And then they go to work on uh, on that one. Hmm. So, yes, going uh, back to uh, Kant, at least in, in my book, I, uh, I start the story with Kant because I do think he is the most philo important philosopher uh, of the last uh, 250 years, and he's been uh, decisive in setting philosophy down a road that did end up in postmodernism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make that very pretty clear in your book uh, um, about Kant. But I was just, in reference to the question uh, that Harrison asked about um, how postmodern ideas have uh, manifested in society or in, in political or social movements, and you mentioned, you know, the the Russian Revolution and even the the, the Nazis. Uh, should we be concerned about <laughs> the current uh, postmodernist <laughs> movement, such yeah. as it is? In that respect. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a university professor, so I do most of my right, social thinking about people in the 18 to 24 uh, age group or so on. And mm -hmm. I'm dealing with, you know, motivated, intelligent kids for the most part. Uh, you know, I think of them as kids uh, now that I'm getting older. But, of course, they're young adults. Mm -hmm. And that uh, is usually the point when you know, young, energetic, thoughtful people who are ambitious in their lives, they formulate their their philosophical uh, outlook. And that's the one that's going to be with them for for the rest of their lives, right, usually. They're then going to become parents, uh, many or most of them, uh, because they're university educated. They're going to become leaders in their in their professions. So they'll have a significant cultural impact. 
But if they are, you know, taught that there is no truth, uh, that they're not really uh, individuals, that they should just see other people and themselves as members of groups, uh, if they don't believe in uh, intolerance in a, in a deep way, if they don't believe that uh, through constructive argument we can make progress, well, that's going to uh, uh, have some deleterious effects 20 years down the road. We'll have a, a very different culture at that point. Okay. So no imminent revolutions are... Well, of course, imminent revolutions are are possible. Um, mm. You know, if, you know, if you're especially angry and adversarial and alienated, and you go very far down the activist road that uh, you think only revolution is possible and that it has to be some sort of violent revolution, mm. uh, we don't know that uh, small groups of people like that have been successful in the past at uh, at mounting coups and putches. Uh, so, of course, that that could happen. So, uh, you know, assassinations, <laughs> yeah, that's right, um, uh, can happen. And uh, um, yeah, so there's, there, there is no way to, uh, to predict that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can go to a, a question from the chat room. Um, Red Fox gives this question, where does Stephen see postmodernism and its social influence heading in Western society in the future? So you kind of already answered that, but uh, if you have anything else to say on that, Stephen, go yeah. ahead. Well, my hope is that uh, postmodernism will become a kind of ghetto uh, to some extent within the universities. As, as uh, Postmodernism is most manifested in the humanities and some parts of the social sciences, not all areas there as well. But uh, universities are typically uh, populated by smart young people and uh, postmodernism uh, is now in its third generation, and it does have a kind of uh, same old, same old feeling, right, about it. Uh, so my hope is that smart young people come in and say, all right, you know, I, I, I want to make a difference in the world, uh, but I'm not really ready to be as jaded and cynical as this, and so I'm just going to avoid the uh, the extreme postmodernism. I think another thing is uh, uh, young people who come into universities, uh, there is a grapevine that uh, when they hear about various professors who are very ideological and only about training activists, they hear from other students and they avoid those classes. So the uh, the demographic numbers uh, might go down and so there will be fewer professors hired to teach those kinds of courses. So there will be a, a self-correcting mechanism there. I think also, uh, especially on university campuses where you have the uh, the outright violence and nastiness that, right, that's going on, uh, donors, right, who in many cases write the big checks, uh, are, are withholding significant amounts of funds and administrators then start to, uh, to pay attention. You know, a lot of administrators have been uh, bending over backwards uh, and being tolerant, uh, sometimes to the point of being spineless in uh, letting manifestations of postmodernism come out on campuses, but uh, many of them are, are just dollars and cents people. So when a, a million dollar donor says, I'm not writing the million dollar check, they will learn the lesson and uh, uh, start to, start to uh, reform internally the university. So I think uh, universities over the next 10 years will uh, start to reform themselves. And that might be uh, overly optimistic, but my my sense is that that's the direction that things will 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 go. They will they will self reform. I think a lot of it is also going to be driven by uh, technology. Young people have now 
many more options for self-education. There are lots of new educational platforms being developed. So people will increasingly be able to avoid universities, particularly the bad and politicized universities, and still get their, uh, their, their, their good education and their certifications and then get on with their, with their careers. So uh, that's yeah. to speak more narrowly about the, the reader or the listener's question about the university context. Um, and so that's what I'd say. Well, we can, I suppose we can hope that would be, I suppose that would be the best outcome. Uh, Stephen, we're going to, we're going to wrap up there um, and, and let you go. We don't, we, we don't want to keep you too long. Wonderful. Um, but thanks a million for, for coming and talking to us. It's been very, uh, very informative, very interesting. Um, people right, good. for me too. People can your 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 books are explaining postmodernism and Nietzsche and the Nazis. You have a website at uh, well, both of those books are available on Amazon and on your website stephenhicks.com. And you've got a, quite a few dot org. Sorry, org. And you've got quite a few uh, YouTube videos, which uh, I've watched a few of them. They're very informative, so people should check those good. out and uh, give you some support. Right. Thanks for the advertisement. Okay, <laughs> no problem. Great. All right, thanks for the discussion, guys. Take care. Good Thanks again. Thank Bye. you, Stephen. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Be safe. Bye-bye. All right. Well, uh, that was that was useful, you know. It's um, it's not. It's always good to talk to someone who kind of knows this inside out and back to front type of thing we've spent. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's, and it's, it's on the front lines. Yeah. Well, it's it's not an easy job to kind of like you know no. to to be a philosopher in the first place, you know, because. Uh, I mean, you're you're delving into all these kind of theories of mind and 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 truth. What is truth and what isn't truth and stuff. And um and there is especially if you have to if you have if you have, if you have to wade through postmodern philosophers, that is so much gobbledygook mm. that it's just mind mind bending. And and I I feel sorry for anyone who any philosopher or aspiring philosopher who ever read any of those French philosophers, each of them either a pedophile or a pedophile supporter. <laughs> Uh, to have to read anything they wrote uh, with the expectation that there was any sense in it and actually trying to make sense of it when there was none there. You know, there's a there's actually a quote um, from, I think it was, uh, I don't know, um, I don't know exactly which academic institution it was, but uh, they basically, a group of, uh, a long group of um, lectures from, maybe from a journal or something, uh, a scholarly philosophical journal or something, uh, basically rejected Derrida, for one, uh, for his uh, in terms of his application. Or, Sorry, it was the University of Cambridge had a ballot on May 16th um, some year about whether Derrida should be allowed to go forward and receive an honorary degree. Mm-hmm. And they basically turned around and said no. Nah, uh, no. Why? Because it, his work does not meet accepted standards of clarity and, and rigor, to say the least. Uh, <clears throat> basically, they regard his. Uh, he, they regarded him as making a career out of translate out of um, uh, an academic. Sorry, translating into the academic sphere tricks and gimmicks similar to those of the Dadaists or the concrete poets. Right now, the Dadaists or the other kind of surrealists of the 1930s, 20s, mm. and 30s in, in Europe, like uh, what do you call them? Uh, um, you know, famous one, uh, obviously Picasso and. And uh, what do you call him? Mustachio Man. Mustachio Man. Dali and Surrealist. Dali. Surrealist. Surrealist. Yeah. Dali. Yeah. More or less the same kind of thing. Uh, he was exhumed recently. Oh, God. 
I'm not going to reanimate it. And his, his mustache <laughs> was intact. His mustache. I heard, yeah. There's a bunch of others, uh, those data sets. Like, I mean, one of them was famous for, um, mostly there were artists and painters and uh, they did some writing as well, but they were want to, they were known for, like, for example, they would jump up um, in Paris cafes, for example, they'd be in a Paris cafe with a bunch of these people and one of them would just spontaneously jump up on a chair. This is actually what happened uh, uh, that was cited. As an example, one of them jumped up in a chair in the middle of a cafe and said, I'm a lemon. And that was it. And sat back down again. So, uh, you know, Derrida is, is being compared by uh, Cambridge University to this, this kind of person. Um, he said, many French philosophers see in Monsieur Derrida only cause for silent embarrassment. His antics having contributed significantly to the widespread impression that contemporary French philosophy is little more than an object of ridicule. Um... He says many have. They say many have been willing to give Monsieur Derrida the benefit of the doubt, insisting that language of such depth and difficulty of interpretation must hide deep and subtle thoughts indeed. But when the effort is made to penetrate it, however, it becomes clear to us, at least, that where coherent assertions are being made at all, these are either false or trivial. So that's the kind of that, that was that was from you know probably about twenty or thirty um, academics. Uh, in in their letter of rejection, in the letter of rejection of, of well, they were of, wise of this, to do so, person. and yet the per, per, pernicious how, influence of these, we, of this, um, just having a, had a platform back then was enough. Yeah, well, I mean, you you asked earlier on why why are these people even being discussed now? You know, in the sense of why are modern uh, are they even being discussed in modern philosophy classes you know, by modern uh, philosophy students and stuff? And uh, Stephen said. Um, more or less, no, no, not, yeah. no, not really. And you said, well, why is it even an issue then? Why is it? Why are these people even being talked about? Why are we talking about it? And the problem is that uh, we're about thirty or forty years too late. Yeah, we've all been infected. Yeah, by this kind of nihilistic, obtuse, deliberately obtuse, convoluted nonsense uh, that where it makes any sense doesn't make any sense either. In, in that, where they talk about. Uh, kind of a uh, subjectivity, and um, there is no such thing as truth. And meta narratives, meta- it's all relative. Yeah, and all re- meta narratives are basically the you know they reject the Derrida was about the rejection of meta narratives. Meta narratives being uh, generally accepted truths, mm-hmm. like stuff like the West is best, or you know that's just a, like a, a catchphrase. But but anything you know um, that was generally accepted in Western culture as being true, they wanted to. Uh, nitpick all of it, take it apart, and find out the contradictions and what was false, and then basically say, "Well, it's crap." So there you go. But these are things that many of the things that they attack and that are still being attacked today, because of their influence, are things that many ordinary people in the West, in particular, and around the world, um, are uh, many ordinary people use uh, to kind of effectively you know, navigate life, mm-hmm. kind of empirical truths that mm-hmm. people rely on to navigate through life and that are that, that, that are useful, that are that are that, that work, right? And that's the question, like Harrison you mentioned earlier on. That may you be know, your truth, qu- but it's not my truth. Well screw mm-hmm. you, it works, you know, and don't pull it down because you're gonna wreck everything if you go too far in that kind of nonsense. Sure you can pick pinpoint a lie of a government here or how power and knowledge is abused or knowledge leading to power is abused, whatever here and there. But you don't deconstruct the entire system 
because there are billions of people who rely on that system, as bad as it may be, for their sanity and for navigating and for communicating. You know, you start deconstructing their language. You basically tell them that, well, you know, all your language is so socially constructed anyway, and it's full of contradictions. You may as well say nothing. So, you know, stop talking to each other. I mean, of course, they would never go as far as to say that, but that's their implication. You know, I want to punch them all in the face. You can't. They're dead. So they're really <laughs> annoying. They're really, really, because they're, they're so pernicious and evil, these people, you know, and I'm not surprised that they're all pedophiles, to be honest. But um, so, yeah. Um, what else is there to say about that? Mm. Um. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's, it's kind of part of the problem in the sense that, and we've, we've kind of talked about this amongst ourselves, is that, you know, a lot of the, a lot, a lot of this, mm, this, this um, philosophy or this, this perspective on life, this relativism, all that kind of stuff, and um, questioning truth and meta-narratives and attacking the system and pointing at all the oppressions and stuff, I mean, they have... What has been co-opted into that movement is, for example, anti-imperialism, you know, um, and that's something that we have been about for a long time, but just in and of itself, certainly not connected to uh, postmodernism philosophy or broad postmodern philosophy. But now you have to question, or at least I have, I have questioned whether or not, or so we thought, or whether or not <laughs> that was part of uh, mm -hmm. the infection of that movement now. But that's, I mean, I can safely discard that because there is basic moral tenets that go back long before any idea of postmodernism or any other kind of mainstream philosophy, which is, you know, kind of, uh, not to say that war is not, war should be abolished or it's, it's absolutely unnecessary always, but that uh, needless war, needless suffering is something that should be fought against. Regardless, you know, but of course, these people, I mean, it's probably, it's, it's an insidious part of it where they co-opt real uh, things that are, are, are valuable to, to, to fight against, if you know what I mean, or uh, exposing lies. And they get sucked into this and incorporated into this broad uh, postmodernist philosophy and, and mm. are, are ruined by it, you know, because you're, it's by association. Yeah. yeah. You know? uh, here's another one. Um, the, 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 the basic concept isn't bad in itself, namely that, well, this is what the postmodernists would argue, you're not part of that other culture, so you are in no position to criticize it. Right. In fact, shut up, you can't say anything about it at all. Well, that's, well, that's, that's taking something that is kind of true, namely, in your criticism of it, you keep in mind that it's not yours, so you may not understand it. You may attempt to. Mm. But then they take it all the way to this extreme. Mm. Of, Where you have to adopt it. If you're, if you're going to say anything at all, and, you have to go and live there, for example. That's what, that's what and it's it. produced this thing today. Right. Where within, within the same culture where the, the shutdown argument in response to any criticism is, no, you can't say that because of your white privilege. Right. Check you don't white know privilege. me. Well, you don't know me at all. You don't live in my skin. Therefore, you cannot say anything about me. Shut up. Don't say a word. Only say nice things to me. Don't criticize me. Don't even say anything that's constructively critical to me because you have no, not because you're wrong, but because I reject your uh, ability 
to say anything about me because you don't know me at all. So shut the hell up. I mean, it's such snowfl- it is snowflakery, you know, it's complete snowflakery. But that's, that, that thing about anthropology, that's what, I mean, um, Ernest Gellner was an anthropologist and he, in his book, Postmodernism, Reason and Religion, he talks about postmodernism from the anthropological point of view and how it has uh, infected and influenced uh, anthropologists and the way they look at other people around the world. And he said that it's got to the point, or, it, or at least it had, and probably has got worse since then, back 20 or 30 years ago when he was writing the book, that, um, you know, Western anthropologists, because of their inherent uh, kind of privilege as Westerners and their abuses, historical abuses of other, like say, African nations or Middle Eastern or wherever other nations, that um, they cannot even pretend to uh, be able to say anything about a culture, even if they go there, they, by going there and looking at it, they're looking at it through a lens of imperialism, of supremacism, of racism, of discrimination, automatically, unbeknownst to themselves. So anything they would write, even if they, they, they try to be just objective about it and write down what the tribe does, it's going to be infused with your discrimination and your supremacism, and therefore it's completely, it's, it's rejected. Yeah. The only thing you have to do is just kind of like stand and stare at them and say, I'm not worthy to say anything about you because or stand up in front of the tribe and say I am a lemon or or stand up in front of the tribe and apologize for historical grievances against them that's the most you could do but even then you might be offending them so you better shut the hell up in fact just go home and don't, don't leave those people alone and let all the social justice warriors go and live with the tribe or let them or in the case of them at least let all the let the social justice warriors go and live with uh, let ISIS brides go and, and and extol the virtues of ISIS as a culture which is what we've seen, actually, people in Western in, in American yeah. universities carrying ISIS flags and wearing burqas in support of ISIS. Can we just press reset? Can we reboot or boot those people out of the university and into McDonald's or something? Harrison, earn a decent wage. Any concluding mm-hmm. thoughts? Well, just. <clears throat> Something that Joe just said a few minutes ago, um, I just want to kind of expand on that a bit, or both of you actually, that when you look at it, when you look at all these kind of conflicts, um, I mean, oftentimes it polarizes. You've got the one side and you've got the other side. Um, And the real kind of tragedy, I think, is that um, that there are... are, Even from the postmodern perspective, like postmodernists get some things right. Maybe, Maybe like... It might, might be a tiny kernel of a, of a truth that, that that then gets co-opted and turned into something right. totally different, and so um, it's it's easy to get oh. lost in the in the art. Oh, go ahead. No, I was say there always is there always is yeah a kernel yeah. of truth. Right. So it's it, it just goes to show kind of what Stephen was saying about how um, well from his perspective he was talking about kind of the liberal um, Republican Democratic kind of ideal. Um, and from the perspective of the individual and from um, objectivity and reason that you that you have two opposing sides and then you actually have to talk with each other. You have to listen to the other person, hear what they're saying, and then um, you know argue your point too. But a part of that process is being willing to admit that you might be wrong about something. In fact, to approach the right. discussion as uh, as okay, I might be wrong about something. So I'm going to present, you know, my case as well as I can, but I'm going to be willing to cede ground if, you know, the other person makes a case. But that becomes mm-hmm. impossible in w- with postmodernists because they won't listen to reason. 
And right. but then that can polarize on the opposite end too, where um, nothing that the postmodernists say will be taken with any, um, you know, as as credible at all. When so when you look at um, at, at a situation like anti-imperialism, there are mm-hmm. um, I think you know definite grievances. Now right. the problem the problem then becomes when you see those gr- grievances in you know, through a certain lens. So the problem with Marxism is that Marxism saw everything through an economic class lens. And mm-hmm. the problem is is pro- probably, you know, well, my thought at the moment is that that just simply isn't true. It's not the system that is the problem, that there are other factors that, that can, um, that can, let's say, like infect any system. So when you're seeing a problem in a system, you're not seeing the system itself as a problem. You're actually seeing, a, a, you know, an independent problem that isn't inherent in the system itself. And mm-hmm. so if you have, you know, a, a, a capitalistic, you know, country, a capitalistic country can still do evil things, but that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, that's not the, necessarily the fault of capitalism per se. There are other factors involved. And that's just why I think, you know, ponderology gets into that, I think. I don't know if ponderology is the be-all, end-all, but I think it answers mm-hmm. a lot. That there's kind of an individual uh, psychological element in there where, you know, the influence of psychopaths and the psychopathic worldview, you can have a system that, that does generally well for, for the vast majority of the people living in that system. But when you have uh, a portion of, let's say, the elite of that system or in the intelligence agencies, for example, that then do their own thing in other countries and, and you know, the vast majority of people and, and people involved in the system may, might not even be aware of it. But then for people on the outside looking in, like in other countries, just see what's going on in that other country, and then we'll blame, you know, this system, right? Without an, an awareness that there might be so, like an infection in that system that isn't mm-hmm. inherent in the system itself. So mm-hmm. I just, you know, that's the way right. I see it at the moment. Um, you know, I just yeah, think it might be worth keeping in mind. Yeah, it's an infection system, and, and the danger is that someone will come along uh, and whip people up uh, to to bring down the whole system, right? Ruin it for, ruin it for everybody. I mean, if you've got a an infestation of, um, you know, something, vermin, mosquitoes, or social justice warriors in your house, or what you need to do is fumigate the house of the social justice warriors or the vermin order, you know, and you don't knock the house down. Right, so you identify the problem, or, or if you need, you've got rot or something. You, you know, you, you do it, um, you do it in a rational way. If yeah, you, but you're not allowed to be rational. But you don't put dynamite throughout the house. Right, exactly. And blow but, it up. But these people, when they add in their own emotional fuel, their own emotional grievances, their subjective emotional grievances to it, well, then that supercharges it, and they want to bring down the whole system. And like Harrison, during the interview, you were saying, I mean, this whole question all about of the postmodernists about well, you can't prove anything to be true, you know. Mm-hmm. Truth is so elusive that you cannot prove that even mathematics or science that it's objectively true because well they say I mean it's such a it's such a a lame kind of manipulative bullshit mm-hmm. argument, you know, to say that uh well, since human beings are like kind of like filters, right? Everything that we see or perceive is through our senses. Therefore we don't apprehend uh the truth about anything because it's filtered through our senses. So anything we, we say about anything is by definition subjective and, and filtered through us. We're not apprehending the truth. So no one can claim to have the truth. But it's not about claiming the empirical truth, the absolute universal uh, truth of something. It's about what works for human society and for people. What works. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. You know, I mean, I mean it can be it can be demonstrably untrue in some in some cases from some, uh, you know, 
completely objective point of view. But as long as it freaking works and doesn't and helps society and helps society to continue on and even and improve and keeps it on that track, well then it's it's true by all to, to all intents and purposes. Mm. Mm. So that argument of like, oh, you can't say it's true. It's like, who are these? Are they are they like six year old girls or something or or boys? Or, you know what I mean? Is it? It's just like silly little bratty argument, you know. And you're meant to actually take it seriously. These people well, do they care a... about human society? They actually care about the welfare of human beings and what works and what doesn't. And realize, yeah, we live in a subjective world, but we have to get on with it. Let's make it as good as we can. Those philosophers should be kicked to the curb. Well, the, one of the points Stephen makes in the book, in, at the very end of the book, which I think is one that, you know, a really good one, is he talks about the three ways of looking at, um, you know, the motivations of postmodernists. The one being that they actually believe in their own relativism, which he, you know, discounts immediately because, well, it, it would be impossible essentially for, for all these people to actually believe in relativism because they believe their own position. But then the second option that he gives is kind of the Machiavellian interpretation where they're aware of all this. They're aware that their position is, is uh, you know, logically impossible and contradictory. And so what you're actually seeing is the use of language as a weapon, which I right. believe... I think it was Foucault who actually said that, that, these, that language is a tool. It, 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 all language is, is a power play, essentially, a power tool. Right. <laughs> so they were, so, they, were they were accusing yeah. the establishment or, or, or the powers to be of doing that, but and in turn, they did it themselves, or they do, they do it themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And, so, that, and mm -hmm. so I think that kind of gets back to the ponderology angle where you look at the people that are kind of setting the agenda, and I can't really see any other way of, of seeing it aside from seeing them as pathological to some degree, like there's something in, you know, right. wrong with the way these people think that they, that they will then do this. I mean, that the, like one of the primary um, descriptions of a psychopath is that they use instrumental violence, instrumental aggression. So this is aggression that is kind of consciously or you know, deliberatively used as a means of manipulation and control. Mm. And that's just the way psychopaths work. And you don't find, even like with um, so-called like antisocial personalities and people who are kind of career criminals, you don't see them using instrumental aggression the same way. No. Their aggression is, is reactive. So they'll, they'll right. react emotionally. But psychopaths are the ones that, that are conniving. They're the, they, mm -hmm. like, very manipulative and, and precise mm -hmm. in the way they use manipulation and aggression to, to yeah. manipulate and control other people. And they so you see... Smile. They do it with a smile, and you see the same thing with the postmodernist philosophers. Um, now, who knows if if they're actually like you know psychopaths, psychopaths? They may just be like a, you know some kind of deranged schizoids that kind of get lost in their own worldview, and it's kind of twisted to begin with, and they come up with these ideas that they can't even you know imagine actually being used you know in the way that you know um, you know s sadistic tr murdering psychopaths would actually use them but they're doing mm. the, a, a similar thing on just on a, in a slightly different way and on a different level they're using their their words their ideas as weapons in this very underhanded machiavellian um, mm -hmm. really well I, sadistic way i mean they're it, it's i'm going and to they obviously get thrills from it which is yeah. why they write reams you know so much stuff and enjoy seeing it perpetuated uh, in, during their own lifetimes and here we are. Yeah, they're like it's, trolls. It's yeah. Yeah. Very the sophisticated trolls. trolls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 
I think that's all we have to say about that. All right. We're going to have a book burning. <laughs> no, no book burning. <laughs> no? We have to keep oh. them as a case studies of what not to write. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Can I can I can I use them as target practice at least? Sure. No, that's I'll put holes. Yeah, I'll put I'll I'll shoot some holes in them and then I'll be able to say sorry. And it'll be postmodern art, and it'll be no. a representation of the holes in their argument. Exactly. I'll even, be able to say even that's too symbolic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, Who are we interviewing next week, Harrison? Are we? Wait, don't say who it is. Don't, don't spoil it. Are we though? No. No. Um, not that I know of. No. Unless TV. we find someone, so. We'll, TBC. Okay. We'll, yeah, we'll see. All right, Harrison. All right. So, I'm gonna play the outro music. So, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to Stephen. And check out his book. It's a really good read. Have a good evening, and see you next week. Bye, all. Take care.